Hey, our grind listeners, welcome to 2023. And I have Dina Brodsky here with me with some exciting news. I actually have some exciting news that Tan helped me with. So for one thing, Tan, thank you. This wouldn't have been possible without you. So I've been teaching a sketchbook class over the last year, which is basically everything I know about sketchbook techniques and materials and kind of how to start a habit and how to keep a habit because it's something that I've been doing for 22 years. So I have this live class that generally fills up within a day or so, but Tan helped me make a recorded class, which is paced the same way and has the same information minus kind of the Q&A part of it. And for anyone who wants to start a sketchbook habit in 2023 and hopefully keep it going for forever or for as long as you need it, I have a coupon code for Art Grind listeners, which is just Art Grind podcast. And it'll give you $50 off the recorded class and it's valid for a week. So until until January 8th. So in case you guys haven't had enough of me, me talking on this podcast, you could also listen to me talk about sketchbooks. Thanks, Dina. And now, without further ado, enjoy the interview with Audrey Flack. Hello, Art Grind listeners. I'm here with Dina. And today we interviewed a real legend. Right, Dina? Yeah, we interviewed Audrey Flack and I was so nervous. She was amazing. Uh, Dean and I were thinking about the myconotypes or whatever that come over this podcast. And she's definitely like a lifer who, who did the thing, man, for sure. So she did the thing and she's still doing the thing. She's 91 and she paints every day and she's still like curious and open to new things and just kind of amazing like like i want to be just like her oh man me too if we could follow in those footsteps it'd be quite a thing sharp as attack amazing artist great insight the life is rich and full and she has a book coming out that you guys will have to get it was an amazing conversation um, and also she's looking for a drafting table and i believe sepia chalk was a super sharp point and i truly believe that this you guys are the audience that can solve this problem there's a reward in it if if you find one of those pencils we'll, we'll, we'll find some sort of prize <laughs> Um, it's an art grind prize for the, the person. Art grind prize. Audrey Flack, CPA. This is is the right CPA chalk. No, so, and I, I guess I want to just be a little bit serious. Like, there are people you talk to who it's hard to repeat. It's it's a little intimidating to talk to someone like that because they've had such a rich impact on the art scene and done it their own way in this beautiful way and brought something really important into the world and it's it's always really nice to listen to those people and how they talk about what they did because i feel like that's where i get so much inspiration from and almost like little nuggets along the way of like oh that's that's what it's not always easier it's not always this you know um she makes me want to go and like make better paintings yeah um, very um, inspirational so um, yeah, just uh, have a listen. And I, I think all of you guys are really, really going to like this one. I really like this one. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Grind podcast. I'm host Marshall Jones here with Dina Brodsky. And today we have an extra special guest, uh, a painter, sculptor, teacher. Uh, I've heard a banjo player as well, <laughs> Audrey Flack. So 
Audrey, when I think of you, I think of New York City and what an amazing influence you've had on this city's art world and also I'm sure what an influence the city has had on you. So um, how, how did you fall in love with art? Oh my goodness. I don't know. Do you fall in love with art or does it fall in love with you? <laughs> I, I think sometimes for those of us who are real artists, you know, not just careerists, um, it's like a calling. Hmm. You can't help it. It's, it. It calls to you in your very being. Hmm. And it's the only thing that seems to make sense in the world particularly now, you know, it, it, art is just an incredible thing, isn't it? It's so- I know you'll agree with me, you two artists. It's so nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you too. Uh, Audrey, thank you so much, by the way, for doing this. I was beyond excited when you agreed to this podcast, just because I've looked up to you for so long. Well, you've been so nice. You know, I told you, I'm really feeling kind of crummy, but- um, you're making me feel better. I mean, physically, I don't know. I hope I'm not coming down with something. So anyhow, uh, yeah, art, art is it's just a beautiful thing in this world. Makes life worth living, doesn't it? I think so. I, I've always felt that way. Do, do you think it makes the world, some people will say, you know, oh, we're not doctors. We're not healing sick people or anything. But I do think it, it serves a function in the world. Do you think it makes the world a better place? Oh, of course. And I do think that art can heal. Hmm. Not only can it heal those of us who make it, but, you know, when I'm having a real hard time, and it depends, it depends on what artists I need to look at, but sometimes I've got to look at a Rembrandt late self-portrait and just stand in front of it and know that he felt what I'm feeling. And it makes me feel better. You know, there's another soul in the world. So art can make you feel better in many ways. You know, looking at a, a gorgeous Rachel Rauch flower painting from the 16th century can make you feel better just because it's so exquisite, it's so beautiful. Hmm. And looking at, a, at, at the soul of another human being, my God, what could be better? I wonder if, because you've, you've reached a really rarefied place, you know, in, in your work is in museums. You're very well respected. You've done this, uh, you know, decades long career of beautiful work doing sculpting and painting and all, all these things. Do you think art means more for those who do it? Or do you think it's accessible in those ways you're talking about healing properties to everyone? Hmm. I don't know, to those who, of us who do it, we can't live without it. Hmm. No, I didn't feel well today and all day, I just wanted to work and I'm, I'm just not up to it today. Well, maybe I'll just pick up a sketchbook and do something, you know. Um, but, I think for everyone, uh, I think, well, I keep thinking of those uh, people who stormed the Capitol. You know, they should have had art lessons. <laughs> they, they should have had a wonderful art teacher 
and they should have been shown beauty to hmm. offset all of the anger and hate because awful things happen in life. And it's one way that we learn to cope, to deal with it. Hmm. Uh, I think it was easier a while ago, you know, when you had Christian iconography and you could look at a painting uh, at a crucifixion and uh, identify, you know, with that pain or the pain that Mary felt, you know, for Jesus on the cross. I think it's, it became a little more difficult when that subsided. Um, and by the way, in terms of Chagall, Dina, that in, in my years and years of going to museums all over the world, you see Christian iconography, you know, you see crucifixions, pietas, you see the uh, stories, and there's one Jewish theme, and that is Chagall's rabbi. That's the one thing in all the museums all over the world that I've been to and all over the United States. It's really interesting. It, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. So that's just a, a comment. Yeah, it seemed like the Catholic Church had a lock on a lot of the a lot oh, of the brilliant. The Catholic Church was brilliant. And what they, you know, what they did with with sculpture, with gold and jewels embedded and glitz. And they wanted to attract people. And they and they did. They were really smart. Hmm. And with sculpture, you know, with incense and stained glass and Bernini's ecstasy of St. Teresa, you're going to fall to your knees. <laughs> they're, they're brilliant. So what was the first art that you fell in love with? Oh, I can tell you. Well, I can tell you. Well, maybe it wasn't the first. I was just going to say Carlo Crivelli. Hmm. You know Crivelli? Of course. Well, he's he's a little known. Uh, he's he's coming up now. He's a 15th century Venetian painter. Second floor of the Met. Go up, and there's a talk about a, a Pieta. Oh, I saw that when I was 14, and I fell in love. I, I'm in love with Crivelli. He was a very bad boy. He was a very bad boy. <laughs> he was thrown out of Venice because he, he stole somebody's wife and locked her in his basement. And he was, he was a crazy guy. Uh, Vasari did not write about him. He was literally written out. Uh, one of the greatest artists that has ever lived. I was, I was so enraged that I went to, I was sold a painting and I was able to go to Europe and I went to the National Gallery in London and they had a magnificent Crivelli, huge. His work isn't that big, it's highly detailed and very ornamented gold leaf with sfumato and uh, incredible, just incredible work. 
and there was a little catalog. Because when I was 14, I went to the Met. Nobody went to the Met, so it was my museum. Unlike it is today, a big tourist attraction. Not that that's bad. But they had a little bookstore that was the size of your kitchen. And of course, no book on Crivelli. So I saved my allowance and I paid $7 for a black and white photograph of that Pietro. Oh That's God. how much I love Crivelli. Wow. So anyhow, years later, I'm in England and there's a little catalog, small catalog, written by the director of the museum. And it says, Crivelli was not a very good painter. First sentence, <laughs> I have to defend my Crovelli. What is this man saying? <laughs> um, he's decorative, he's uh, ornamental, and he was very linear and incised line at a time when a, a softer, right, Correggio kind of thing was in style. And I wrote a paper. I wrote an essay defending Crivelli. And that was like 40 years ago. The paper got published in an art magazine called Arts. At that time, it was Art News and Arts. What do you know? Last year, I get a call from a, an email first, a museum director in Birmingham, England, who saw my paper and who's a Crivelli lover. And, you know, there are those of us, we're like a little cult. You're going to be a Crivelli. And he's, he's just a great artist. He's a truly great artist. And this man got a, uh, a grant. It was two years ago. He got a grant from the British government he borrowed Crivelli's, that one from the National Gallery and uh, other Crivelli's. And I had made my version of a Crivelli too. Um, and he put on a big, it, was, it just closed. It was on for months and months in Birmingham, England at the Icon Museum. Wow, that's so full circle. Like your, your favorite, it's like, the, the artist that really inspired you when you were young wrote an essay and then ending up, you know, a part of the show later on. That's amazing. Isn't that thrilling? That is crazy. The only thing is I hurt my back and I couldn't go. Um, what can I tell you? So, is, it, is there a way that our listeners could find this article? Is it? Uh, my you article, know, you know, it's, it's reproduced in the catalog he made a beautiful catalog of Gravelli's oh, wow. work. Um, his name is Jonathan Watkins and it's the Icon Gallery and they might be able to find it. But I like to do that. You know, I did that for, for um, Louisa Roldan, a woman's uh, sculptor. You know, you, you, gotta, you gotta stand up for the guys who you love. Hmm. You really have to, particularly if they've been denigrated. 
Well, it, it seems like if you don't make it into that Vasari book, it's it's hard. It's a hard road for you. He really, <laughs> he really championed a lot of those. Um, you know, so you grew up in New York, right? Yes, I was born in Brooklyn, and I moved when I was one or two years old to Manhattan. I mean, my parents moved to Manhattan, and I grew up in Washington Heights. Um, and how did you discover art other than going to the Met? How did you discover that you can do art? Well, you know, I didn't have encouragement from my parents at all. They didn't know about art. Um, but I was a very hyperactive child, still am. And I couldn't sit still in a school that you had to sit with your hands clasped together and be very good. And it was agony for me because I really had ADD, had ADHD. Hmm. So I would have been on Ritalin. Um, and because I, they, I couldn't sit still, I mean, it was torture. I tried so hard to be good, but they said I was bad um, because I couldn't obey and sit still with my hands clasped. So I would squirm and I would itch and I would get up and I would wiggle and do the things a child does. And they always threw me out of class, said I was bad. And one teacher, um, I guess took pity on me and gave me a sheet of oak tag paper and a pencil. And that was it, that was it. You know, that made my world. And then, and then another teacher, I don't know if it was kindergarten or first grade. You know what a diorama is? Yeah. Yes. Well, she had us make dioramas, go around the corner and get a shoe box or some kind of box. And I remember when I made my diorama, the whole world, time stopped. You know how time stops. You're artists, right? When you work, there's no time. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, everything stops. You're just in another zone, a wonderful zone, a beautiful zone. And you, you have to be to let the beauty in because that's where you are. No, I can't believe that beauty is almost like a bad word what happened to beauty? Um, well, okay, it, it became, you know, it became unhip for a while, uh, but um, my theory is that it's coming back now. There's a beauty revival. Oh, wow. Okay. That's good. But we never lost it. You know, we just, you know, the beauty that comes out of, of a great creation, the mixtures of color, composition, technique, uh, feeling, ideas, passion, all of these things combined, when, they're, when they reach a peak, things begin to vibrate. And when you're lucky, you get an exquisite beauty that touches you. Wow. 
Can you, can you feel that vibration when you're working? You know, when it's clicking? You know, you know, you know, when you hit it, you know, it. you know, when you screw it up too. You know, when you put that extra color in and it turns mud, but uh, you know, when you hit it, hmm. I really, it's like when an athlete hits the tennis ball right in the middle of the racket and it goes ping, you hear that sound. And if you do it again and again and again and again, and you win the Wimbledon, you know it. Hmm. Except you don't have a lot of people cheering you. You're alone in your studio. <laughs> Um, well, uh, you are, but you can still hear the sound. You know, you can like just because you're alone doesn't mean you can't hear that ping sound. Um, so, uh, Audrey, what happened next? So, you went from being your hyperactive child who makes a diorama and starts drawing. How does that sort of set you on? I mean, you've had one of kind of a legendary art career you've been at this for forever and I feel like you're constantly like inventing and reinventing yourself and like always working like what happened between then and now what was the next phase Uh, and by the way you know I did I've been writing this book for 40 years I never thought it would be a book but it was just writing not going to go into it but it's going to be published so you can read a lot of this hmm. uh, probably in May. In May? Yeah. So it's a it's like an autobiography? Yeah. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah. I think um, I think you'll enjoy it. Well, I want to read your book, but, um, and actually for everyone who's listening, which is probably mostly artists, everyone should read Audrey's book. That would be the long version. I guess it's hard to get everything down into, you know, an hour long podcast, but what was kind of your next step? Like, when did you start taking it more seriously? I don't know. When you're a child, you just do things. You don't think of careers or serious or schools. You just in school. I was reading about another artist. I'm not going to mention her name because I would say kind of negative things and I don't want to do that. But she was uh, given art lessons at a very early age and very pampered that way. Um, What happened to me is I just drew, I, I, I made Indian beads you know, I was just really creative and um, no private lessons. Hmm. I read somewhere. That you- I, I heard about this school called Music and Art High School and it was free. And I prayed that I would get in, you know, but I no, no coaching, no no help, really. And it's, it's too bad. It would have been nice. And uh, I heard that you had to have a portfolio. I didn't even know what a portfolio was. So my mother said, go to the five and dime. They have everything. They didn't know about art schools or anything. So I went to the Woolworths with my allowance. And I said, uh, the sales girl, 
do you have a portfolio? Nobody knew what I was talking about. And somebody finally said, go over to the stationery department. And there it was, a portfolio. Well, what was it? It was this big. It was like eight by 10 writing folder with envelopes and, and, and paper in it. And across the top in gold embossed letters, it said, portfolio. I said, wow, am I lucky? I got a portfolio. So I paid for the portfolio and I took it home. I couldn't imagine why the envelopes were in it. And you had to bring 10 samples of your work. So I had a Mongol pencil with an eraser. And um, I'm not even going to bother to tell you the 10 things that I drew. And my father drove me there in our old car. And when we got to the top of the hill, I see hundreds of students going to take the test with real portfolios, big black cases. I was mortified. I got back in the car and said, I'm not going on, you know. And my father pushed me out. He said, you're a flack, you don't give up. <laughs> and uh, luckily they had, they had a model, they had a student model in leotards. And they gave newsprint paper and charcoal, both of which I'd never seen. And um, we had to draw from the model. And I sat there and I remember being electrified. It was thrilling to draw from this model. I'd never done that before. And I looked around and I was good. I knew my drawings were good. Mm. I just, you know, and luckily I got in. And that was the start. Houston Art was a great school, really great. That's an amazing story. So, so you, you, it was like a test to get in this, this. Oh yeah, you had on the model. That's crazy. How cool is that? And you knew you felt a ping. You knew you were good. You knew you had it. I knew, I knew it. I knew it. I'm telling you, you know, and you know when you're fooling yourself. I, I would imagine a lot of artists know when they're fooling themselves. Mm. A lot of fakers. Do you, do you think so? I, I actually, I, I feel like everyone, okay, like on one hand, such terrible art out there, but in a way, no one really goes into it to make a zillion dollars, right? So I feel like all of that terrible art that I don't like much, it's still genuine. I it, like I think almost like everyone is in it for the right reasons. You think so? Um, I, you know, with the one exception of maybe most things that are popular in like sort of Chelsea, it was it was a possible exception of the people who are making a lot of money in the other part of the art world, in which I'm assuming most of our listeners are not a part of. I think once there is a lot of money involved, you can almost become disingenuous because, you know, it sells. But for, for most people, I, I think they're genuinely, it's something they're doing because their soul is calling them even if we might not like the result. Like, like, I don't think anyone looks at it and is like, oh God, this, you know, like, like I'm really bad at this. Well, you know, you might be right. I mean, I, I would like to see examples of who, 
who you're thinking of, but you um, can't do that now. <laughs> maybe, maybe when we're not recording, though. But it's a nice, it's a nice way to think about it. Yeah, um, I, I mean, so, so Audrey, when it, when I walk around, I, I mean, it doesn't happen frequently, but when I walk around Chelsea, a lot of what I think about is that they can't be serious. Like they, they can't mean this. Not they can't be serious. Is like they can't mean this as a genuine way of sort of like getting a part of their soul out like like they've got to be in it for the money or the fame or the prestige but I think a lot of the people who are just sort of doing this at home not thinking of themselves as a professional I, I like like I think they're probably in it for the same reason that I am like just trying to make something beautiful uh, that is possible you know art is very healing making art is healing and when people retire dentists, doctors, lawyers, they don't start writing books. Mostly they start painting. They take classes. And I don't know. I think, I think you're probably right that way. I think there are, there's a lot of gimmick happening, happening now. You know, what's the latest thing? What can I cash in on? What can I do? And maybe people don't think of it that way, but I think it's in the air. Hmm. Um, so you went to the high school for the arts. Uh, what, what, what happened next? Did you go to university or, I mean, you, no. were do, you, were, you were painting realistically at a time when I feel like it was hard to even find that kind of education. Oh so my did God. You All right, so music and art high school. I wanted to paint like an old master. I wanted to draw like an old master when I saw Crovelli. And I also grew up near the Hispanic Museum that was on 155th Street and Broadway. And I lived on 175th. So I would go there and I would look at the sculpture and the paintings. What a great place that is. Um, but in music and art high school, that got beat out of me because everything was abstraction. Everything was Picasso, was the Cubists. The world was abstract mm. and there's great value in it. You know, there's great value in it. Everything else was old fashioned. Realism was, you're not interested. So I got converted. I got converted, momentarily converted, but inside of me, I always secretly drew and copied the masters, but the world was abstract. Picasso was it, I forged Picassos. There's some of my Picassos out there. And then my, my career was all, my schooling was all luck. It was just luck and divine providence because I didn't plan my mother felt too much education ruined the girl's chance of marriage. So she was not for me going to college. And I heard about music and art, uh, about Cooper Union, also free. And I took that test, got in. Luck, I'm telling you, it was amazing. And luck that I even heard about it by another little girl in the park. 
who turned out to be something else. Well, um, but when I went to Cooper Union, which was 48 to 51, abstract expressionism, the heart of Abex, the heart right down on Astor Place, 8th Street, out of studio, 8th Street and 3rd Avenue. I hung out with, with de Kooning and Pollock. They were, everybody was on the street. Everybody was there. Mm. That's what you did. And it was thrilling. I got to tell you, it was thrilling and pure. Yeah, that, that, that does, could you speak to that purity? Cause that does seem like a pure time because you, the way you were talking earlier, like you were saying now you see that the art world is a little more gimmicky. And I think of that time of de Kooning and Rothko as no gimmicks. And really they didn't really see, uh, there wasn't much of a, a future. It didn't seem like they were doing it to get recognized or anything. Am I, am I right about that? It was just his love of painting and trying to do something new. Yeah. yeah. They had ideas. I mean, I'm reevaluating it all the time. I never stop. I write a lot about it in the book. Mm. You know, it was also dangerous because they weren't like you and me and Dina. Um, they scared the hell out of me. Hmm. I, um, but I was so impressed and thrilled with them and thrilled with the ideas. And I did some really good abex work, I really did. Yeah, I love your abstract work, actually. It's great. Um, um, wait, I, I kind of want to hear more. Well, I want to hear more about a lot of things, including you forging Picassos, which I feel like is just something that you threw out there and, oh, and no, moved no, on. Let's, and... let's let it throw out there. Let it pass. <laughs> that was in high yeah. school. Um, but but these sort of like wild, dangerous people, what were they? I mean, it, like, like it sounds very attractive, but what was it like? Well, um, for me, you know, I... I guess I put on, I tried to act like I belonged, but it was really pretty bourgeois, you know. They were alcoholics. Mm. I mean, they were drunks and, and, and they were out of control. And the women that I wanted to be, I write a lot about that. You know, the, the women, uh, Grace Hardigan, uh, Joan Mitchell, and uh, Lee Krasner, Lee didn't drink, Lee didn't drink, but the rest of them were, were drunks. And I was, um, had a glass of wine, two glasses of wine, I'd be on the floor. My, my body couldn't handle it. I didn't come from that kind of environment. My household wasn't that. And, um, I couldn't keep up with them and I didn't want to. I, I wanted to look like, you know, I wanted to belong, but uh, also sexually, while I considered what I was considered in, in my neighborhood pretty wild, right? Was this a bourgeois Jewish neighborhood filled with Holocaust survivors? Uh, I wore jeans, all the other girls wore little bouffant skirts and bobby socks 
So I was considered pretty bohemian. But next to these women, I was you know, a bourgeois girl. I, I, I had boyfriends, I, you know, but I never wanted any of those guys. They really, first of all, filled with macho testosterone and dominance. And um, I don't know. I write a lot about it. You'll, you'll find it very interesting because while the women, uh, these women abex painters were very strong and terrific painters, they, they were not feminists in that. They acted like the men. Mm. They drank, they smoked. They felt you had to make big paintings. They felt you had to have big brush strokes, you know, all of this machismo stuff. And I didn't go for that. It's some, something in me wouldn't allow me to do it. Now, I paid a price. I paid a price because you were not in the inner circles. You know, had I had that affair with, with Pollock instead of... Uh, What's her name? Who I introduced to him. But, you know, you, you gained prestige according to who you slept with if you were a woman. And um, anyhow, it was a treacherous time and a dangerous time and a thrilling time and a beautiful time at the same time. However- It sounds kind of toxic. Coming into our world, and I say our world, the world of realism, the world of direct vision, is, is it just a beautiful oasis? And that's the place I want to stay. You know, I learned so much from the other and incorporated it. But uh, how did you find that place? Here you are introducing Jackson Pollock to his lover and, you know, maybe rejecting his but advances. Ruth Kligman, Ruth Kligman, that's her name. Re- yes, Ruth Kligman, that's right, yes. Um, and, and you're kind of hanging out with all of these, you know, macho, somewhat drunk, maybe somewhat toxic people. How did you find the place that you started heading to? Like, like, like you must have, did you teach yourself how to paint? Well, I mean, I had teachers. My teachers were abstract expressionists. Yeah, yeah, so I'm... I went to the league and I studied. Now I'm going to hit another one with a great anatomist, and you will know his name. Uh, Robert Beverly Hale. Yes, I studied with Hale, who yeah. loved the abstract expressionists, by the way. He loved them. Oh. A great teacher. So I, you know, that would that had always been something I wanted to learn. I wanted to draw the way my God, Rubens and Raphael, so wonderful. I'm still looking for the sepia-colored pencil that Raphael used because he got a very fine edge by a very fine point. And you could never, I could never get it with personal color. Hmm. Well, we could send that out to our listeners. Maybe, maybe one of them. Uh, I've been looking for years. Uh, I think it's a, it's a chalk 
And it might have been a chalk that they had then. Because my daughter said, uh, she's a musician and, you know, Stradivarius violins, they cannot make again. Because the wood comes from a certain period of time when the earth either was frozen or something. And it was around that period. And I think that's when they made that sepia colored chalk. Oh, that's interesting. That could totally be true. If you find some, let me know. Well, like, okay, I'm gonna, you know what? I don't know where to find wood for a Stradivarius violin, but I feel like I've got some good sources for art materials. So I'm, I'm gonna solve this problem for you. <laughs> oh, the other thing I could put out is I need a drafting table for my New York. <laughs> Does anybody have an old drafting table? <laughs> we'll find you one. I feel like we're skipping something though, because you had such a, an intro after Cooper Union, I know you got, uh, recruited by one of the legends of the art world to go to Yale. So let's hear that story. Yes. That's unbelievable. I mean, your whole life is so unbelievable. So <laughs> what oh, please. well, you haven't heard the, the, the really rough parts because they were very <laughs> rough parts. They were really hard parts. But, and art really got me through, really got me through. Well, if you, if you would like to share some of those, we'd, we'd no, like to them as well. No, not right now. So they're in the book. <laughs> okay, buy the book, everyone. I think, I think the title will be um, just Audrey Flack with Darkness Come Stars. Mm, that's good. That's very evocative. <laughs> with Darkness Come Stars. I think it's not, I mean, it, it, you're speaking about a certain amount of, because I think if you're someone like me, you and you haven't read the book you've just sort of followed your career you could think that um i mean i know your life as someone who did not come from privilege but did sort of excel at this thing and it does feel looking out from the outside in maybe a little a little more um resistanceless than it was you know what i'm saying so i think darkness in the title is nice what do you think dina I think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful name. I'll read your also, book. Should I have an image or should I have an image of me? You know, your paintings are so iconic that, um, okay, okay. So the one that um, has, you know, been associated in my head um, with, with, with you for years is the one that probably is the one that was in my art history book when, so when I was 17, it's my first year of university and my university was also sort of dominated still many years later by abstract expressionists. And so my first like art history class that covered modern art history, I was like this, I, I just wasn't taking a lot of things in. Like it seemed really visually bland and it was a lot of stuff like that. And then there was that one, that one painting of yours. It had the mirror on the table and I think a rose and maybe just some lipstick or, or whatever. And, for, um, and I was, yeah. And I was like, I, I want to paint like that to me. Like I had no idea you were still alive. I had no idea it was possible to, you know, track you down and have a conversation with you. Right. But to me, you, you know, you were the master, like you were the person that I wanted to learn how to paint like. Oh, thank you. Um, but so my vote would be for that one. <laughs> oh, 
that's a horizontal. I don't um, think it would have to be cut. Okay, and you need a vertical. Um, uh, I mean, all right. Anyhow, that's not for now. Um, Audrey, you, you have a lifetime of work, but my, my, my vote is a painting rather um, rather than it because everyone will recognize like like one of your paintings. So. Um, Speaking uh, of painting, why why do you do a oil over acrylic? Well, now I don't, you know, for many years I've just done acrylic. Okay. But is it is it because I'm I'm experimenting a little bit with oil over acrylic and what what were why did you abandon it then? What were you don't want to know the truth? I don't remember. I am so ancient. I cannot believe how old I am. Um, yeah. Life is um, really something. Um, but I think all of acrylic is, is fascinating. I, I don't think you should abandon it. Play around with it because oil has its own rich qualities and acrylic obviously has its own rich qualities too. I remember when I visited de Kooning out in East Hampton, I came over and we had lunch and I brought him a book on my work. And uh, he was, he said, what kind of paints are these? And I said, they're acrylic, they had just come out. It was 1980. And uh, he was very impressed with the, the acrylic has uh, captures light in a way that oil doesn't. Hmm. And the colors are, are brilliant in, in, a, in a way. They're, they both have their qualities. I mean, you'll get the best of both. But for me, spraying at that time, acrylic was much better because I was spraying oil without a mask. Mm. Like, when I think of what I did. Um, oh. I don't know, play oh. around. Acrylic, acrylic is an interesting tool and now they have phosphorescent colors. Yeah. I, I'm just excited by it all. And I'm, lo I'm loving the drying times with acrylic for like those underlayers. How I assume you used it, like those were the first layers in acrylic, then oil over those. And it's, it's really nice to have those quick drying times in the early layers, it's great, so. I can tell you this, that they've held up, I mean, knock wood, my acrylic paintings are fresh as, as they were when I made them. Hmm which is not what you could say about oil. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So uh, tell us about Yale. Tell us when, when you, how, how you got recruited there. That's such a great story. And I thought what? How you got recruited. They, <laughs> Yale came to you as I understand it. Oh, well, oh yes. Oh, my. Not many people can say that. <laughs> well, I remember painting. I was in the sixth floor painting studio at Cooper, you didn't have your own studio. You painted in a big room. And Milton Glazer was next to me. And I would stay late to paint. So uh, one of the deans tapped me on the shoulder. And of course, I thought, I'm, I'm in trouble again. That was my history of my school life. And they said, go up, go up to the president's office. 
and I went up, I opened the door and I see this apparition, Joseph Albers himself sitting there. And um, he was a very smart man. He had left Black Mountain College to become the Dean of Yale. And now, now the former Dean, and we made fun of him. I didn't, but people made fun, was an academician. I don't remember his name, but people were painting very representationally, realistically with, they were doing gold leaf with very small brushes. Here comes Albers. He's Bauhaus modernist. He inherits all of these students from this former dean. They didn't know what the heck he was talking about. Plus he had this German accent and uh, he was in trouble. He was about to lose his job. Mm. Mm. So he said, what's the best way I can, what can I do? I'm going to import a couple of um, rebels, a couple of avant-garde students. Uh, he said, ah, you know, you know the abstract expressionists? I said, yes. Ah, you know Jackson Pollock? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know <laughs> de Kooning? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he asked me to bring 10 of my paintings to Yale. Uh, which we loaded in the back of my father's car. And never did I ever think I was going to go to Yale. And it was all male, by the way. And the art school was, I think, four years after four years of college. So I, Cooper Union was only a three-year degree. Hmm. You didn't get a bachelor's. You just got a Cooper degree. Well, what did I care? You know, I learned art. So uh, anyhow, that's how it happened. He uh, looked at my work. He was very... He was tough, but there's another story about Albers. That's What's in the the story of the book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all I'm have to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder if I could get a, a, a if I find you uh, that that sepia ink. Can I have a say? You know, can I get a signed copy of the book? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> My goodness. Actually, I've got to see what's happening with it now. Um, so um, that's it. Then um, went to Yale. I took every art history class that was, wasn't nailed down. It was a great experience, really was. But Albers and I stopped talking to each other after a while. So did Rauschenberg had trouble with him too. Hmm. It was, he was the kind of teacher that, you know, it was his way or the highway. Hmm. And I, I don't think that's a good teacher. You don't make clones. Anyhow, that's another story. So then you, so you're sort of at this, I don't know, the, the nadir of like abstract expressionist and, the avant-garde's coming in. And then as you were 
sort of shift to the forefront of photorealism? Like what, what made that shift? It wasn't a shift. You know, huh. there's a show being planned about mid-century realism. There was a period after Abex when, or during Abex, when, uh, you know, I just wanted to, I wanted to be figurative. I wanted to do still lifes. I wanted, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to be abstract, but there were other artists like that. I wasn't the only, there were artists who never did it, who never were abstract, like Alice Neal. Mm. She was a representational artist, all, always. But there were those of us who were ab abstract artists who said, enough of this tyranny. You know, we want to be, we want to paint, we want to paint. So you don't go from that to photorealism. It's, it's like a camera coming into focus. Mm. And so there's a whole period that's never been contextualized, never been placed in our history. The period from the early to mid fifties up until I think I start using the photograph, my own little snapshots in very early 60s, very early 60s. By 63, I'm committed. Hmm. Kennedy gets assassinated and we're dumbstruck. This is, you, you see the president shot on television in front of your eyes. And I, um, I wanted to paint it. And how am I going to paint it? You know, his head is blown off. So I need a photograph. And I had been working with photographs. They had cameras that gave you a picture that was the size of a postage stamp, little called brownie cameras. So I would take pictures of my children, still lives and things. And I began studying black and white shadows, the way, uh, that, that, that was amazing because what a camera does is it, is it takes a picture and it flattens the three-dimensional onto a, onto a piece of paper. So it translates three-dimensionality into two-dimensionality. Whereas when we do it, you know, with our eye, we have to do it ourselves. Our brains have to do it. Here, the camera does it. And the camera interprets black, white, and a million shades of gray into it. And later it, it does it with color. So there was so much to learn and study. Tremendous, I learned so much. Shadows, just studying shadows and shading. And, uh, it, it's a, it was a new way to see. And that opened it up and so from and the Kennedy painting I did was the first painting I think ever done by a color photograph, a color photograph. Mm. Before that, it was black and white. Mm. This was color photo. After that, I also think I did the first painting ever done by a color from a color slide. So now that introduces something else because the slide 
you're dealing with light. So, so how did you do that? Were, were you, did you project the slide on the wall and like, yes. get it as and I projected what I did is I, I was broke and I needed, I needed, um, I needed money for a school for my daughter. I have one of my older daughter is autistic and I needed desperately to find a school for her. There was, there was no help in those days. Um, I got a commission to do a portrait of this family, uh, two sons and a mother and father and um, I, I took photographs and I took slides and I came home and I began to sketch in charcoal, black and white. And then I thought, you know, I'm only gonna paint over this. I'm gonna try to, I, anyhow, I called a friend in the neighborhood. I said, do you have a projector? He came over, it was 10 o'clock at night. I projected, a slide and I gotta tell you, I mean, it's not bragging, but my eye is pretty damn good. I was within an eighth of an inch or less than that, a fraction of an inch of my charcoal drawing. My wow. projection. Uh, that's great. So I said, I'm gonna paint over this. Why, why am I gonna elaborate on it? I, and I began to direct paint. Hmm. That is also thrilling. Thrilling. I was in a state of orgasmic ecstasy for about 10 years painting those paintings. Huh. So that could very well be the birth of photorealism, right? Like that, the, that yeah, moment. Yeah. Well, there were other, you know, Chuck was doing his thing. And, um, but Chuck was gritting. Hmm. I didn't have to grit. And Richard was doing other things. You know, Richard's a wonderful artist, but very, Richard is uh, very ordered and, and he's, anyhow, he's terrific. Um, you know, so the person that wrote us introduction to you was uh, Louis Maisel. Um, when did you meet him? Well, uh, Ivan Karp. Did you ever hear of Ivan Karp? I... He had yes. a gallery called the O.K. Harris Gallery. And I know O.K. Harris, yeah. Yeah. And Ivan was a very important person in the art world. Um, Ivan dealt with Andy Warhol when he was with Castelli. Ivan, Ivan had a great eye. And Ivan was a macho guy. And Ivan sensed that there was a... Um, a move, new movement, and he 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 had his pulse on everything. Artists would go into his gallery. He said, "Yeah, there were all these young these artists are working from photographs." So he called Chuck and Richard and me, and Bechtel was on the West Coast. On yeah, West Coast, but one or two others. And he was giving a, a talk at a place called the Figurative Artists Alliance. And there were very disgruntled figurative artists who, who were not being paid attention to. And they invited Ivan to speak. Uh, and Ivan 
took my slides, took Chuck's slides, and he took everybody, you know, and he formed this movement, this photorealism. He said, there's this new movement. And I went there, we were watching, and one by one, he showed everybody's slides but mine. I, why didn't you show my work? And he said, uh, you don't fit in. And uh, he said, paint what I tell you and I'll make you rich and famous. Those were his words. And what he was describing was cars, motorcycles, street scenes with no people, Chuck's portraits, expressionless. And I'm painting weeping Madonnas, World War II, opulent, Baroque, still alive. And uh, of course I didn't fit in, but I was also the only woman at that time. I was the only woman, interestingly enough, and this is for another time, the only Jewish person and I think that's interesting because what he was describing was cool colors, minimalist, kind of under the guise of modernist because Chuck was always pushing that. And um, grays, blues, unemotional, distant, like the photograph. It's not me. And he was right, I didn't fit in, but I didn't fit into what he was describing. He was creating the description of a movement, which would leave out any kind of emotional work. Mm. So um, women, but I mean, obviously men do that too. What I find it interesting now is that photorealism has been um, sort of pushed aside and people don't realize how important and how influential it's been because Kahindi Wiley, photorealist, he wouldn't do any of that work. A lot of these young artists and a lot of young black artists are deeply indebted to photorealism. Hmm. And yet we're looked at, it, it, it'll turn around, you know, someday. It's so fickle. The art world is so fickle. But I can tell you this, when MoMA hung my painting after God knows how many years, they hung it, I don't know, six months, eight months ago, people were looking at that painting. I don't know, the word out, what I heard was that, gee, everybody's hanging around that painting. Hmm. People like to look at. Um, well, you know, people like to look at it because there's a lot to look at there. Like there's just, there's just a lot of painting. Like you want to look at, you know, the, uh, yeah. like yeah. you want to look at painting with lots of painting. Uh, and I think that's why everyone's hanging around and actually, and I feel like a lot of stuff at the moment doesn't, you know, like, like I think it's more about the concept behind it than painting. So you might be interested in reading it rather than looking at it. Uh. Yes. Well, I feel bad about the MoMA. I used to love that museum. You know, I spent my 
childhood at that museum. And I, I remember when the garden was earth, I would take my sneakers off and put my feet in the earth, you know? It was just a wonderful place. It's just like a tourist entertainment place. And they don't get it. They don't get it. They, they don't, I don't know. I think they lost, they lost the magic. Hmm. How do you feel about the moment? I don't like it. I mean, that's not one of the museums I go to in New York. Right. Uh, I, I go to the Met. I don't go there. I mean, I'll go to the Frick, go to um, the Morgan, go to the Met. The Morgan is also like, there's never a huge crowd there. Uh, like, like it's still like under, you know, like, like, like it's not unknown, but I feel like it's still a little on the underappreciated side. You can like frequently find yourself like just by yourself, like in front of the painting that you love and no one bothers you. Well, and that Holbein show was one of the best in the last. Yeah. Except for that time that me and Marshall were there where people were telling us to get out of it. Me specifically, I think to like get out of the way, not be so close to the Holbein, you know. I kept getting yelled at. (laughs) <laughs> that show was amazing and totally worth being yelled at for a chance to get really close to, you know, Holbein painting. So. It's true though. Your, your paintings have content that I, I didn't think about that. That is a little outside of that. Uh, just kind of detached, you know, cool photorealistic aesthetic. How important is, I mean, I think of you like doing Marilyn Vanitas and like you were saying, the Kennedy motorcade and these with like content and story and a little a little perspective behind them how important is narrative to you i love narrative no i enjoy it i feel like we're like a third of the way into a really like long beautiful career but um hopping to where you are right now like you're still painting you're still making art um which which is amazing like like you're kind of doing what I want to be doing and you will you will Um, it the force is with you and will always be with you you two are just wonderful I really enjoyed both of you and maybe we'll continue it you know I have a new series called post-pop baroque that's my new series of paintings Mm. and um sculpting so but you know I um, I get discouraged because my body is not the way it used to be. Hmm. Like I'm really tired now. I have to go lay down. And I'm not used to that. Hmm. So you young spirits carry on. Take on. What do they pass on the torch? Keep it going. <laughs> Keep it going for me. All of you and everybody out there listening who's really struggling to make something beautiful and wonderful and add something to the world. Well, if if I could say something, Audrey, it's people like you that give us motivation. You know, you see someone who did such beautiful work with, with such integrity and a life in this thing that's really it's it's so exciting for us to to get to talk to you remember too i mean jolie madame the painting that you like dina was blasted in the new york times 
really, it was called vulgar. And I, I was, um, what was I, mercenary. I was, I mean, you're going to get killed for what you do, particularly if you do anything original. Uh, and so you just, I remember when Richard got a horrible review, he said, oh, it didn't bother me. He just left for Europe the next day. <laughs> it bothers you. It hurts. Hmm. And, um, and you just have to learn to just go beyond it. Hmm. You know, Audrey, thank you so much for just taking time out of your day and doing this. And, you know, I hope our paths cross, like cross in I person one day. I do too. I, where do you live? So um, I live in Boston, but I'm in New York all the time. And I know approximately where you are as well, because I've, you know, both interviewed people from there. And uh, I had this project for a bit drawing Louis Maisel's beech trees. So I went up there for a while because he has this enormous beech tree collection. So I think that that was when he first told me that I should interview you. He was like, you know, the really interesting person around here is Audrey Flack. Lewis is great. Lewis opened up photorealism the way Ivan did not. Lewis opened it up to women. He opened it up to other vision. Lewis is really a unique individual, a wonderful, strong. He really made photorealism what it is instead of a stilted little waspy type thing. Well, and that was actually oh. where I first saw one of your sculptures because you've, you've got this, you know. Oh yeah, you saw that. Kind of in the middle of his beech tree garden. So Nikki, um, thank you so much. And um, yeah, I, I know if I'm ever up there again, I would be honored to have a cup of tea with you. Yeah. Well, I'm also in the city, so thank you. Thanks thank Audrey. You so, so charming. I'd love to see your work. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Audrey. Bye. Thank you for listening, and I hope you got some good painting done while we entertain you with our amazing guest. If you like what you're hearing, follow and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done so yet. And if you're so inclined, rate us whether you love or hate us. We love hearing all the different opinions and appreciate the feedback. You can reach out to us at artgrindpodcast at gmail.com or DM us on IG at artgrindpodcast. You faithful listeners have the power to help us grow. So please spread the word. It's free and you'll feel good about it. So until next time, stay on the grind while we fill your mind.